Why is Bryden's doppelganger curiously disfigured? Henry James, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. This marks the first week of vintage episodes released alongside the new episodes of the Classic Tales Podcast. How did you like them? Are you looking for more? Please let us know by going to classictalesaudiobooks.com. Pick up an audiobook, become a supporter, leave a review, or send us an email. Let us know if you'd like more. The vintage episodes include not only a remastered version of the original release, starting in 2007, but also new introductory material, story and author background, notes on why the story was chosen, and any performance choices that may or may not have worked. We'll continue the vintage episodes for a month. At that point, we'll see if this is something we can continue. This week, we'll be releasing both parts of Thomas Hardy's Barbara of the House of Grebe. Classic Tales app users can hear the first episode now in the special features for today's episode. So keep an eye on your podcast feed, and you'll see two vintage episodes appear, one on Monday, another on Wednesday. If you like it, head on over to classictalesaudiobooks.com and let us know. And thanks for your support. Today we finish Bryden's story, and he meets his doppelganger, the darker man he could have been. This desperate need to reconnect with his lost chances, lost friendships, lost opportunities, etc., has its roots in the writings of Emanuel Swedenborg, who influenced James greatly. One of Swedenborg's theories was that of vastation, in which a supernatural encounter with your darker alter ego occurred, which must be defeated and overcome to progress in the spiritual plane. Emanuel Swedenborg influenced many great thinkers, including Fyodor Dostoevsky, Robert Louis Stevenson, George Bernard Shaw, Sheridan Le Fanu, Abraham Lincoln, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, and many others. And now, The Jolly Corner, Part 2 of 2, by Henry James. The Empty Street its other life so marked even by great lamplit vacancy, was within call, within touch. He stayed there, as to be in it again, high above it, though he was still perched. He watched as for some comforting common fact, some vulgar human note, the passage of a scavenger or a thief, some nightbird, however base. He would have blessed that sign of life, he would have welcomed positively the slow approach of his friend, the policeman, whom he had hitherto only sought to avoid, and was not sure that if the patrol had come into sight, he mightn't have felt the impulse to get into relation with it, to hail it on some pretext from his fourth floor. The pretext that wouldn't have been too silly or too compromising, the explanation that would have saved his dignity and kept his name in such a case out of the papers, was not definite to him. He was so occupied with the thought of recording his discretion, as an effect of the vow he had just uttered to his intimate adversary, that the importance of this loomed large, and something had overtaken, all ironically, his sense of proportion. 
if there had been a ladder applied to the front of the house. Even one of the vertiginous perpendiculars, employed by painters and roofers, and sometimes left standing overnight, he would have managed, somehow, astride of the window sill, to compass, by outstretched leg and arm, that mode of descent. If there had been some such uncanny thing as he had found in his ruined hotels, a workable fire escape in the form of notched cable or a canvas chute, he would have availed himself of it as a proof, well, of his present delicacy. He nursed that sentiment, as the question stood, a little in vain. And even, at the end of he scarce knew once more how long, found it, as by the action on his mind of the failure of response of the outer world, sinking back to vague anguish. It seemed to him he had waited an age for some stir of the great grim hush. The life of the town was itself under a spell. So unnaturally, up and down the whole prospect of known and rather ugly objects. The blankness and the silence lasted. Had they ever he asked himself, the hard-faced houses, which had begun to look livid in the dim dawn, had they ever spoken so little to any need of his spirit? Great builded voids, great crowded stillnesses put on often in the hearts of cities for the small hours, a sort of sinister mask, and it was of this large collective negation that Brydon presently became conscious all the more that the break of day was, almost incredibly, now at hand, proving to him what a night he had made of it. He looked again at his watch, saw what had become of his time values. He had taken hours for minutes, not, as in other tense situations, minutes for hours. And the strange air of the streets was but the weak, the sullen flush of a dawn in which everything was still locked up. His choked appeal from his own open window had been the sole note of life. And he could but break off at last as for a worse despair. Yet while so deeply demoralized, he was capable again of an impulse denoting, at least by his present measure, extraordinary resolution of retracing his steps to the spot where he had turned cold with the extinction of his last pulse of doubt as to there being in the place another presence than his own. This required an effort strong enough to sicken him, but he had his reason, which overmastered for the moment everything else. There was the whole of the rest of the house to traverse, and how should he screw himself to that if the door he had seen closed were present open? He could hold to the idea that the closing had practically been for him an act of mercy. A chance offered him to descend, depart, get off the ground and never again profane it. This conception held together. It worked. But what it meant for him depended now clearly on the amount of forbearance his recent action, or rather his recent inaction, had engendered. The image of the presence, whatever it was, waiting there, for him to go. This image had not yet been so concrete for his nerves as when he stopped short of the point at which certainty would have come to him. For, with all his resolution, or more exactly with all his dread, he did stop short. He hung back, 
from really seeing. The risk was too great, and his fear too definite. It took at this moment an awful, specific form. He knew, yes, as he had never known anything, that should he see the door open, it would all too abjectly be the end of him. It would mean that the agent of his shame, for his shame was the deep abjection, was once more at large and in general possession. And what glared him thus in the face was the act that this would determine for him. It would send him straight about to the window he had left open, and by that window, be long ladder and dangling rope as absent as they would, he saw himself uncontrollably, insanely, fatally, take his way to the street. The hideous chance of this he at least could avert. But he could only avert it by recoiling in time from assurance. He had the whole house to deal with. This fact was still there. Only he now knew that uncertainty alone could start him. He stole back from where he had checked himself. Merely to do so was suddenly like safety, and making blindly for the greater staircase, left gaping rooms and sounding passages behind. Here was the top of the stairs, with a fine large dim descent and three spacious landings to mark off. His instinct was all for mildness, but his feet were harsh on the floors, and strangely, when he had in a couple of minutes become aware of this, it counted somehow for help. He couldn't have spoken. The tone of his voice would have scared him, and the common conceit or resource of whistling in the dark, whether literally or figuratively, had appeared basely vulgar. Yet he liked, nonetheless, to hear himself go. And when he had reached his first landing, taking it all with no rush, but quite steadily, that stage of success drew from him a gasp of relief. The house, with all, seemed immense. The scale of space again inordinate. The open rooms, to no one of which his eyes deflected, gloomed in their shuttered state, like mouths of caverns. Only the high skylight that formed the crown of the deep well created for him a medium in which he could advance, but which might have been, for queerness of color, some watery underworld. He tried to think of something noble, as that his property was really grand, a splendid possession. But this nobleness took the form, too, of the clear delight with which he was finally to sacrifice it. They might come in now, the builders, the destroyers, they might come as soon as they would. At the end of two flights he had dropped to another zone, and from the middle of the third, with only one more left, he recognized the influence of the lower windows, of half-drawn blinds, of the occasional gleam of street lamps, of the glazed spaces of the vestibule. It was the bottom of the sea, which showed an illumination of his own, and which he even saw paved, when at a given moment he drew up to sink a long look over the banisters, with the marble squares of his childhood. By that time, indubitably, he felt, as he might have said in a commoner cause, better. 
It had allowed him to stop and draw breath, and the case increased with the sight of the old black and white slabs. But what he most felt was that now, surely, with the element of impunity pulling him as by hard, firm hands, the case was settled for what he might have seen above had he dared that last look. The closed door, blessedly remote now, was still closed, and he had only in short to reach that of the house. He came down further. He crossed the passage forming the access to the last flight, and if here again he stopped an instant, it was almost for the sharpness of the thrill of assured escape. It made him shut his eyes, which opened again to the straight slope of the remainder of the stairs. Here was impunity still, but impunity almost excessive, inasmuch as the side lights and the high fan tracery of the entrance were glimmering straight into the hall. An appearance produced, he the next instant saw, by the fact that the vestibule gaped wide, that the hinged halves of the inner door had been thrown far back. Out of that again, the question sprang at him, making his eyes, as he felt, half start from his head, as they had done at the top of the house, before the sign of the other door. If he had left that one open, hadn't he left this one closed? And wasn't he now in most immediate presence of some inconceivable occult activity? It was as sharp, the question, as a knife in his side. But the answer hung fire still, and seemed to lose itself in the vague darkness to which the thin, admitted dawn, glimmering archwise over the whole outer door, made a semicircular margin, a cold, silvery nimbus that seemed to play a little as he looked, to shift and expand and contract. It was as if there had been something within it, protected by indistinctness, and corresponding in extent with the opaque surface behind, the painted panels of the last barrier to his escape, of which the key was in his pocket. The indistinctness mocked him even while he stared, affected him as somehow shrouding or challenging certitude, so that after faltering an instant on his step, he let himself go with a sense that here was, at last, something to meet, to touch, to take, to know. Something all unnatural and dreadful, but to advance upon which was the condition for him either of liberation or of supreme defeat. The penumbra, dense and dark, was the virtual screen of a figure which stood in it, as still as some image erect in a niche, or as some black-visored sentinel guarding a treasure. Byron was to know afterwards, was to recall and make out the particular thing he had believed during the rest of his descent. He saw, in its great gray glimmering margin, the central vagueness diminish and he felt it to be taking the very form toward which for so many days the passion of his curiosity had yearned. It gloomed, it loomed, it was something, it was somebody, the prodigy of a personal presence. Rigid and conscious, spectral yet human, a man of his own substance and stature, 
waited there to measure himself with his power to dismay. This only could it be. This only. Till he recognized with his advance that what made the face dim was the pair of raised hands that covered it, and in which, so far from being offered in defiance, it was buried as for dark deprecation. So Bryden before him took him in, with every fact of him now in the higher light, hard and acute. His planted stillness, his vivid truth, his grizzled bent head and white masking hands, his queer actuality of evening dress, of dangling double eyeglass, of gleaming silk lappet and white linen, of pearl button and gold watch guard and polished shoe. No portrait by a great modern master could have presented him with more intensity, thrust him out of his frame with more art, as if there had been treatment of the consummate sort in his every shade and salience. The revulsion for our friend had become, before he knew it, immense. This drop and the act of apprehension to the sense of his adversary's inscrutable maneuver. That meaning, at least, while he gaped, it offered him. For he could but gape at his other self in this other anguish. Gape as a proof that he, standing there for the achieved, the enjoyed, the triumphant life, couldn't be faced in his triumph. Wasn't the proof in the splendid covering hands strong and completely spread, so spread and so intentional that, in spite of a special verity that surpassed every other, the fact that one of these hands had lost two fingers, which were reduced to stumps, as if accidentally shot away, the face was effectually guarded and saved. Saved, though? Would it be? Bryden breathed his wonder, till the very impunity of his attitude and the very insistence of his eyes produced, as he felt, a sudden stir, which showed the next instant as a deeper portent. While the head raised itself, the betrayal of a braver purpose. The hands, as he looked, began to move, to open. Then, as if deciding in a flash, dropped from the face and left it uncovered and presented. Horror, with the sight, had leapt into Bryden's throat, gasping there in a sound he couldn't utter, for the bared identity was too hideous as his, and his glare was the passion of his protest. The face. That face? Spencer Brighton's? He searched it still, but looking away from it in dismay and denial, falling straight from his height of sublimity, it was unknown, inconceivable, awful, disconnected from any possibility. He had been sold, he inwardly moaned stalking such game as this. The presence before him was a presence, the horror within him a horror. But the waste of his nights had been only grotesque, and the success of his adventure an irony. Such an identity fitted his at no point, made its alternative monstrous. A thousand times, yes, 
as it came upon him nearer now, the face was the face of a stranger. It came upon him nearer now, quite as one of those expanding, fantastic images projected by the magic lantern of childhood. For the stranger, whoever he might be, evil, odious, blatant, vulgar, had advanced as for aggression, and he knew himself give ground. Then harder pressed still, sick with the force of his shock, and falling back as under the hot breath and the roused passion of a life larger than his own, a rage of personality before which his own collapsed. He felt the whole vision turn to darkness and his very feet give way. His head went round. He was going. He had gone. Chapter 3 what had next brought him back, clearly, though after how long, was Mrs. Muldoon's voice, coming to him from quite near, from so near that he seemed presently to see her as kneeling on the ground before him while he lay looking up at her, himself not wholly on the ground, but half raised and upheld, conscious, yes, of tenderness of support, and more particularly, of a head pillowed in extraordinary softness and faintly refreshing fragrance. He considered, he wondered, his wit but half at his service. Then another face intervened, bending more directly over him, and he finally knew that Alice Staverton had made her lap an ample and perfect cushion to him, and that she had, to this end, seated herself on the lowest degree of the staircase, the rest of his long person, remaining stretched on his old black-and-white slabs. They were cold, these marble squares of his youth, but he somehow was not in this rich return of consciousness, the most wonderful hour, little by little, that he had ever known, leaving him as it did so gratefully, so abysmally passive. And yet, as with a treasure of intelligence waiting all round him for quiet appropriation, dissolved he might call it, in the air of the place, and producing the golden glow of a late autumn afternoon. He had come back, yes, come back from further away than any man but himself had ever traveled. But it was strange how, with this sense, what he had come back to seemed really the great thing, and as if his prodigious journey had been all for the sake of it. Slowly but surely his consciousness grew his vision of his state thus completing itself, he had been miraculously carried back, lifted and carefully borne, as from where he had been picked up, the uttermost end of an interminable grey passage. Even with this he was suffered to rest, and what had now brought him to knowledge was the break in the long, mild motion. It had brought him to knowledge. To knowledge, yes. This was the beauty of his state, which came to resemble more and more that of a man who had gone to sleep on some news of a great inheritance, and then, after dreaming it away, after profaning it with matters strange to it, had waked up again to serenity of certitude, and has only to lie and watch it grow. This was the drift of his patience, that he had only to let it shine on him. He must, moreover, with intermissions, still have been lifted and borne, 
since why and how else should he have known himself later on, with the afternoon glow intenser, no longer at the foot of his stairs, situated as these now seemed at that dark other end of his tunnel, but on a deep window bench of his high saloon, over which had been spread, couch fashion, a mantle of soft stuff lined with grey fur that was familiar to his eyes and that one of his hands kept fondly feeling as for its pledge of truth. Mrs. Muldoon's face had gone, but the other, the second he had recognized, hung over him in a way that showed how he was still propped and pillowed. He took it all in, and the more he took it, the more it seemed to suffice. He was as much at peace as if he had had food and drink. It was the two women who had found him, on Mrs. Muldoon's having plied, at her usual hour, her latchkey, and on her having, above all, arrived while Miss Staverton still lingered near the house. She had been turning away, all anxiety, from worrying the vain bell-handle, her calculation having been of the hour of the good woman's visit. But the latter, blessedly, had come up while she was still there, and they had entered together. He had then lain, beyond the vestibule, very much as he was lying now, quite, that is, as he appeared to have fallen, but also wondrously without bruise or gash, only in a depth of stupor. What he most took in, however, at present, with the steadier clearance, was that Alice Staverton had for a long, unspeakable moment not doubted he was dead. It must have been that I was. He made it out as she held him. Yes. I can only have died. You brought me literally to life. Only, he wondered, his eyes rising to her. Only, in the name of all benedictions, how? It took her but an instant to bend her face and kiss him. And something in the manner of it, and in the way her hands clasped and locked his head, while he felt the cool charity and virtue of her lips, Something in all this beatitude somehow answered everything. And now I keep you, she said. Oh, keep me, keep me, he pleaded, while her face still hung over him. In response to which it dropped again and stayed close, clingingly close. It was the seal of their situation, of which he tasted the impress for a long, blissful moment in silence. But he came back. Yet, how did you know? I was uneasy. You were to have come, you remember, and you had sent no word. Yes, I remember. I was to have gone to you at one today. It caught on to their old life and relation, which were so near and so far. I was still out there, in my strange darkness. Where was it? Where was it? I must have stayed there long. He could but wonder at the depth and the duration of his swoon. Since last night? She asked, with a shade of fear for her possible indiscretion. Since this morning, it must have been. The cold, dim dawn of today. Where have I been? He vaguely wailed. Where have I been? He felt her hold him close, 
and it was as if this helped him now to make in all security his mild moan. What a long, dark day. All in her tenderness, she had waited a moment. In the cold, dim dawn, she quavered. But he had already gone on, piecing together the parts of the whole prodigy. As I didn't turn up, you came straight. She barely cast about. I went first to your hotel, where they told me of your absence. You had dined out last evening and hadn't been back since. But they appeared to know you had been at your club. So you had the idea of this? Of what? She asked in a moment. Well, of what has happened? I believed at least you have been here. I've known all along, she said, that you've been coming. Known it? Well, I believed it. I said nothing to you after that talk we had a month ago, but I felt sure. I knew you would, she declared. That I'd persist, you mean? That you'd see him. Oh, but I didn't, cried Bryden with his long wail. There's somebody, an awful beast, whom I brought too horribly to bay. But it's not me. At this she bent over him again, and her eyes were in his eyes. No, it's not you. And it was as if, while her face hovered, he might have made out in it, hadn't it been so near, some particular meaning blurred by a smile. No, thank heaven, she repeated. It's not you. Of course it wasn't to have been. Ah, but it was, he gently insisted. And he stared before him now, as he had been staring for so many weeks. I was to have known myself. You couldn't, she returned consolingly. And then reverting as if to account further for what she had herself done. But it wasn't only that, that you hadn't been at home, she went on. I waited till the hour at which we had found Mrs. Muldoon that day of my going with you, and she arrived, as I've told you, while failing to bring anyone to the door. I lingered in my despair on the steps. After a little, if she hadn't come by such a mercy, I should have found means to hunt her up. But it wasn't, said Alice Staverton, as if once more with her fine intentions. It wasn't only that. His eyes, as he lay, turned back to her. What more then? She met it, the wonder she had stirred. In the cold, dim dawn, you say? Well, in the cold, dim dawn of this morning, I too saw you. Saw me? Saw him, said Alice Staverton. It must have been at the same moment. He lay an instant, taking it in, as if he wished to be quite reasonable. At the same moment? Yes. In my dream again, the same one I've named to you. He came back to me. Then I knew it for a sign. He had come to you. At this, Bryden raised himself. He had to see her better. 
She helped him when she understood his movement and he sat up, steadying himself beside her there on the window bench, and with his right hand grasping her left. He didn't come to me. You came to yourself. She beautifully smiled. Huh. I've come to myself now. Thanks to you, dearest. But this brute, with his awful face, this brute's a black stranger. He's none of me, even as I might have been, Bryden sturdily declared. But she kept the clearness that was like the breath of infallibility. Isn't the whole point that you'd have been different? He almost scowled for it. As different as that? Her look again was more beautiful to him than the things of this world. Haven't you exactly wanted to know how different? So this morning, she said, you appeared to me. Like him? A black stranger. Then how did you know it was I? Because as I told you weeks ago, my mind, my imagination, has worked so over what you might, what you mightn't have been, to show you, you see, how I've thought of you. In the midst of that, you came to me, that my wonder might be answered. So I knew, she went on, and believed, that since the question held you too so fast, as you told me that day, you too would see for yourself. And when this morning I again saw, I knew, it would be because you had. And also then, from the first moment, because you somehow wanted me. He seemed to tell me of that. So why? She strangely smiled. Shouldn't I like him? It brought Spencer Bryden to his feet. You like that horror? I could have liked him. And to me, she said, he was no horror. I had accepted him. Accepted? Bryden oddly sounded. Before, for the interest of his difference, yes. And as I didn't disown him, as I knew him, which you at last, confronted with him in his difference, so cruelly didn't, my dear. Well, he must have been, you see, less dreadful to me. And it may have pleased him that I pitied him. She was beside him on her feet, but still holding his hand, still with her arms supporting him. But though it all brought for him thus a dim light, you pitied him? He grudgingly, resentfully asked. He has been unhappy. He has been ravaged, she said. And haven't I been unhappy? Am not I? You've only to look at me. Ravaged. Huh, I don't say I like him better, she granted after a thought. But he's grim, he's worn, and things have happened to him. He doesn't make shift for sight with your charming monocle. No, it struck Brighton. I couldn't have sported mine downtown. They'd have guided me there. His great convex pince-nez, I saw it, I recognized the kind, is for his poor, ruined sight and his poor right hand. Ah, Brighton winced, whether for his proved identity or for his lost fingers. Then, he has a million a year, he lucidly added. But he hasn't you.
and he isn't. No, he isn't. You, she murmured as he drew her to his breast. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of The Jolly Corner Part 2 of 2 by Henry James. We've got more ghost stories by Henry James and others at ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com. Click on over and check it out. Thanks for pitching in. And keep an eye open for the vintage episodes coming on Monday and Wednesday. This week, both parts of Barbara of the House of Grebe by Thomas Hardy. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. <laughs> ¶¶